This is Competition Law with Professor Karon Baton Wells, exploring the challenges in competition policy, law, and enforcement. This series looks at the impact of those challenges in a digital economy and on society overall, whether you're a citizen, consumer, or competitor. In this episode, Karon speaks with Professor Catherine Tucker from the MIT Sloan School of Management about competition in the world of online advertising. If we were starting from the beginning and trying to work out, well, what eyeballs on a particular web page might be interested in winter coats, what data would be useful for giving that kind of insights? That's where the real judgment comes in. So given so much data, what is really rare often in this market is the judgment or the skill in identifying when an ad would actually be relevant for a pair of eyeballs. And that's not going to come from using the data in a very straightforward manner. Here's Karon Beaton-Wells. Love them or hate them, everyone has a view on advertising. And no more so nowadays than in the field of antitrust, as arguments abound about ad-supported attention platforms and their implications for competition. There have been studies into the digital advertising sector in Australia and France, and soon to come in the UK and the US. And a recurring finding is that, together with increasing returns to scale and network effects, large datasets held by major platforms are generating market power and distorting competition in online advertising. Our guest today, Professor of Management Science and Marketing, Catherine Tucker, disagrees. Drawing on her empirical research, Catherine is circumspect about the competitive advantages to be derived from big data. But she's in no doubt about the extent to which the use of data by firms and by government really matter in our personal lives. And this is where we started the discussion, on a personal note. I first started studying the effects of privacy on digital medicine back in 2006. And back then, my colleagues at MIT, their attitudes were, well, we can't imagine anything more uninteresting to study. Digital medicine, that doesn't sound very interesting. And certainly this privacy thing, you know, it's very niche, isn't it? It's not of general interest, not very vogue how two uninteresting things uh, interact with each other. But what spurred me on, despite everyone telling me it was very uninteresting, was when I was actually pregnant with twins myself, they were suffering something called twin-to-twin transfusion syndrome. And the doctor literally had to go with a ruler between his office and the office of radiology to try and work out how much amniotic fluid they had because they weren't able to transfer the files due to privacy regulation. And that was what I think probably made me very passionate about this topic. And so I did all of that. I wrote these papers talking about the interaction between privacy and our ability to do digital medicine well. And then (laughs) I was in Washington presenting these papers and I was then told in the way I'm used to it's all very interesting what you're doing but that's not really what we're interested in in Washington what we're interested in is really privacy and advertising that's that's really important 
And I felt completely ashamed at that point because I was actually a marketing professor and everyone assumed I knew nothing about advertising, which have then led to my circuitous route back thinking about data, privacy, and so on in digital advertising. So that was a circuitous long answer of how I ended up to where I am. So essentially, you did a pivot, to use a buzzword of the day. I, I still am passionate about questions of digital privacy in medicine, but you know, I did realize that in some sense, if you want to do work which speaks to policymakers at the moment, as we both know, which is why we're having this podcast, digital advertising excites a lot more people. Well, speaking of advertising, which is the focus of our discussion, digital technology has really transformed the advertising industry, hasn't it? Can you put any basic facts or figures around that just to give our listeners a sense of the degree of transformation? So... The way I always explain the transformation of advertising is that if we went back 15 years ago and I was teaching advertising at MIT, it was always a bit of a bit of embarrassment, really, because it's the ending of any marketing course. And what we'd actually secretly do is we'd play Australian beer ads and the reason we play Australian beer ads is because, as you know, especially 15 years ago, they were outrageously sexy, but sort of funny at the same time and transgressive. And so the MBA students would love it and marketing professors would get great teaching evaluations. And so it all worked very well. But now when I teach advertising, it's the part of marketing which has really transformed in that the reason we showed Australian beer ads was because we really couldn't say anything substantive about it. There was no real strategy apart from finding someone to make you a good ad, which I can't really tell you how to do. And we couldn't measure whether or not they were any good at it. It was really a, you know, an open subject. But now when you teach advertising transformatively, is the place where we probably know most about strategies. We know a lot about targeting. We know a lot about how to get the right ad to the right person. And I think what's often missed is we often talk so much about targeting, but we talk far less about measurement. And for me, the measurement piece is the place which has been really transformative. Imagine actually starting to be able to measure how this important piece of the business world, which we never could measure before, actually works. So that's how I think of it as transformative. And I challenge any other part of, say, a business school curriculum to come up with that degree of change in such a small amount of time. So as you say, the transformation is tied to the fact that ads can now be so highly targeted, but also that their performance in that targeting can be tracked and measured, which I guess means advertisers can determine better now than ever whether they're getting the best return on their investment and they can then allocate their dollars accordingly. That's right. I mean, imagine trying to do any kind of optimization with something you really had no guidelines about how to do or how to measure. You're not getting very far, but now we can just automate that entire process, which has completely changed it. And Catherine, with this automated process comes a large and complex ecosystem for the advertising industry. It's got multiple layers and actors, and it's quite opaque to the onlooker. Can you give our listeners just a general idea of 
who the main players are in this ecosystem and what their key functions are? Of course. I will just say to the listeners, if you want a good laugh or at least a funny PowerPoint slide, that you should look on your favorite search engine for something called the Loomiscape. And the Loomiscape is the most amazingly large and complex flow diagram you have ever seen trying to describe various parts of the online advertising industry. You will not find a better PowerPoint slide. And it's probably quite overused in digital marketing conferences, but not yet overused in law conferences. And what that diagram shows is that basically there are at least 20 clusters of potential players which lay between the marketer and the publisher, where the publisher is the person or company coming up for the web content. And you might think of these as multiple platforms which help these two interact and find the right eyeball for the right ad at the right time. So I won't do justice to the 20 clusters here, but the way I think about it is it's very unusual to have this many platforms potentially interacting on this journey between eyeball and publisher. And I defy you to find a more complex industry. And in this context, am I right in thinking we're talking about something called programmatic advertising, the process of automated buying and selling and delivering of ads in real time as distinct from direct advertising? Have I got the terminology right? That's very good. And I'll be honest, the terminology changes every two years just to frustrate one. But I think programmatic advertising is a very good way of describing it. And usually when someone says programmatic advertising, you're referring to the process of bidding in real time for a pair of eyeballs as they arrive at a website. So in this complex ad tech supply chain, give us a sense, is it highly fragmented with many different players at each level? Or is there a degree of vertical integration in the chain, seeing some firms offering a number or all of the services together? So I think you've already well highlighted that you see a bit of both, really. There's an amazing amount of fragmentation because I can tell you from teaching my wonderful MIT MBA students, this is a very attractive area to enter if you're a startup because it's reasonably easy to enter. But of course, you do have firms that are reasonably well integrated and therefore spanning many of these different functions. Can you give us an example of that? Say Google, does it span a number of layers in the supply chain? So Google would certainly span multiple layers in the supply chain. Of course, it may still interact with various DMPs and data suppliers. So I don't want to say it's somehow an independent entity, but certainly it is possible for me to bid on an ad in the Google search engine and just use Google data and then the ad appear on Google, which would make it somewhat integrated. One of the recurring complaints one hears from advertisers is that because of this complexity in the sector, they've got limited visibility into the way in which it functions. And the opacity itself is said to be a problem 
because despite all the tracking and measurement advantages you've referred to, they're actually unable to assess for themselves whether they are getting the best value for money or they are getting the performance on their ads that they've been promised. What's your view on that? Do you share the general concern of some that there's a lack of transparency in the system? So I think being probably too much of an academic, I'm going to come down decisively on both sides there. <laughs> Let me tell you, why don't I start with why I have a lack of sympathy and then go for why I have some sympathy. So one area where I perhaps lack the sympathy is in the area of measurability. So there has been recently a huge cry or, or kerfuffle around the fact that sometimes ads are shown on a web page, but people don't scroll down to see them, but you may still be charged even if they don't scroll down to see them. And this has been highlighted by a lot of industry players as problematic. My reaction is, isn't it wonderful that we even potentially begin to know this? In the past, when we had TV advertising, you or I could go off to make a cup of coffee. No one would have any idea and we wouldn't even begin to think that there was any question of trying to measure that or not charge somehow for our coffee break. And the fact that we're now having these conversations about very micro elements of measurability for me is really an indication of how far the industry has shifted and some of the amazing advantages of digital advertising over earlier forms of analog advertising. So that's one view. Another view, of course, is something where I get to talk about my own research, which is that recently we looked into the world of data brokers. And I should just highlight that this was done jointly with Tim Whitfield, who is an advertising executive in Australia, and also Nico Neumann, who is a marketing professor at Melbourne Business School. And so this is actually an Australian study. You don't have enough of those. And what we are looking at is how well data brokers did at actually telling you someone's gender. And as our source of truth, we basically had a survey where we said, are you male or female? And then we took that cookie and said, data broker, can you tell us what gender the cookie is? And I'm pleased to tell you that they got it right about 50% of the time. And there is an instance where you might say, well, this is just terrible. We have this incredible data ecosystem and they can only do just about as well as random chance at telling me whether someone is actually female. So that's one reaction. As we say in our paper, one potential solution is more transparency measures, which are being pushed by various players in this ecosystem. The other reaction I have in this study is why is it that advertisers are so focused on gender anyway? in a advertising ecosystem. I mean, you and I, we may be both of the same gender, but I doubt that's going to be predictive that we're going to buy exactly the same thing this weekend. You know, what would be a far more predictive, presumably, is the fact I'm looking for baby clothes and I don't know what your 
<laughs> what websites you're browsing right now. So there are definitely some problems of how the advertising ecosystem works. But is that essentially because the promises being made by those publishing the ads as to how targeted they are don't hold up? Is that the essential point? So the essential point, I think, is that it is amazing that this ecosystem can do what it can. I think probably the places where it goes the most wrong, or at least we hear the most outcry, is when, first of all, we're able to measure stuff that we never thought we could measure, such as people's attention on ads. And then we're like, oh, well, how do we even start to think about paying for people who are not paying attention? And the second thing which goes wrong is when we try and use this ecosystem potentially to do something which is not well set up to do. What you've said really does underscore the fact that the digital ad industry is one that necessarily now collects, processes and uses massive amounts of data. And as you're aware, Catherine, the competition policy and antitrust world is really interested in whether or not large data sets confer an enduring competitive advantage. So this is a topic you've written on a lot. And interestingly, you've argued that a useful way to think about these questions is through the lens of the strategic management literature and something called the resource-based view of the firm in particular. Can you tell us a bit about that framework? So... This is actually what we teach for marketing strategy, and this is our cornerstone framework. You first of all challenge students to say, well, what is your firm's competitor advantage? And then I get them to write it down, and then I challenge them to look at it through three lenses. And the three main lenses are, is it something that you control? Second, is it something which is different? Third, is it something that can be imitated? And usually most of the students who started off with exactly what their corporate strategy website told them to put down are looking a lot sadder at the end of the exercise. But I find it an incredibly useful lens for really analyzing whether something is a sustainable source of competitive advantage or simply the buzzword du jour. And to cut to the chase, and you'll correct me quickly if I'm wrong, your bottom line on big data as a resource that confers competitive advantage is essentially that it doesn't meet these criteria of control, difference and imitability, or indeed related criteria, which you've identified as data being rare and being inherently valuable, which I'm guessing are interlinked with the other criteria you've mentioned. Have I done justice to your position on that, Catherine? I think that's reasonable. I mean, if you start off with something as broad as big data, maybe any time you start off with something as broad and nebulous as that, you're going to fail these criteria. But I, I agree with the bottom line. Well, let's talk about big data, particularly as it applies in the context of advertising markets in which the major platforms compete, because you'd also be well aware that the argument by these platforms and their advisors is that advertising markets are incredibly competitive and big data doesn't confer any particularly 
enduring or special competitive advantage or pose a barrier to entry to others. So let's just talk about that. Take us through those three criteria, control, difference, and imitability, and why you say that in the context of digital advertising markets, they're unlikely to confer a competitive advantage. Yes, of course. So as you rightly identified, another way of looking at control is the extent to which a competitive resource is rare. You know, do you control how unusual it is, is another way of thinking about it. Because if you want it to be your source of competitive advantage, you better control it in a way which makes it hard for others to imitate it. And this is what I think is wonderful as a digital scholar, is the extent to which any time we're online, we're just creating this vast digital footprint, which is somewhat hard for any one player to control uniquely. So that's the first stage, just pointing out that when we go online, we are by necessity creating data for many different players in the ecosystem. Now, that brings us to the question of whether or not you can imitate big data. I always think that that is slightly the wrong question in that I think it leads you to get focused on the binary nature of data and an individual sliver of data, rather than asking the really important question, which is whether or not that data has unique insight. So if I just give you an example, I was on the bus this morning. I was searching for baby cloves. And you might say, oh, that means that that one firm you're using to search for baby clothes on has unique data about you now. But for me, that misses the point and probably why I react slightly negatively all the time to be talking about data or big data as a very general thing, in that what's important in advertising markets is really using data to know what ad to show to which pair of eyeballs. And so as a consequence, the big question is, is there only one firm in the world who knows that you should show ads to me for baby clothes? And I can guarantee there is definitely not one firm in the world that knows that. There are many, many firms that have information that I am a new parent, as well as a search engine. Many of my favorite e-commerce sites, eBay, Amazon, have actually noticed that I'm looking for baby clothes. I think, unfortunately, my birth has been announced on many social media sites. I've been to enough parenting websites. It's just everywhere that I am a fretting mother who really probably is in the market for baby things. So for me, it's just whether or not the insight is unique. So if I can sum that up, I think what you've said is that the value in big data is not the data itself, but what it reveals about our current or possibly future purchasing intentions and that as consumers, we are routinely creating such a wide digital footprint across multiple platforms and apps such that those insights can be gleaned from a variety of alternative sources. Is that right? That's a beautiful summary. Thank you. And can I add, referring back to your earlier paper, isn't it also the case that one can now buy at a relatively low cost enormous amounts of data on such matters from data brokers? 
So certainly you can. And I really liked the distinction you made here, which is how I often think about advertising, in that you might think of we want to find people who are potentials. We might want to find people who are intenders. We may want to find people who have already purchased and therefore potentially in the market for more. And the data industry or data brokers have done really a great job of putting together these different segments of data. And you've also made the point that the benefits to be derived from big data are imitable because of the tools now available for tracking and measuring success, something you've referred to earlier. Tell us a bit about those tools and how you'd say they've transformed the competitive dynamics of the industry. Okay, that's a really nice question. So again, these are tools which have various names at various times. I'm going to call them the name that I like, which is cross-channel attribution software. And what that rather chunky or lengthy name describes is a firm which helps you pull in data from a variety of sources, both online and offline now, including potentially TV and radio, and allows you to then measure those advertising allocations against purchases from these advertising channels and in real time calculate return on investment. Now, maybe four or five years ago, when I last wrote a paper on them, that was sort of it. You had this beautiful dashboard which told you that TV had a higher ROI than, say, digital display advertising. But since then, these technologies have really evolved, even such that you can actually, in real time, continually try and optimize between your channels so that you're always spending your money where you see the most ROI or return on advertising in that channel at that particular time for that particular product set. And presumably, if you see performance that's not tracking on the metrics that you are after, whether it be in terms of volume or efficiency or impact, you can pull the campaign from a particular channel and switch. Yes, I mean, that's one of the beauties of digital, that you can switch between channels so instantaneously. In the old days, you would plan a campaign, there would be a lag, you'd execute it, there'd then be a lag for execution. And then perhaps you'd maybe be able to measure something through rebate codes or so on. And you discover that the advertising was useless and you just wasted all your money. There was no better place to burn a lot of money than advertising. But now what's amazing is it's no longer the case that we're really just money burning when it comes to advertising. Instead, we're in real time able to track and measure and avoid wasting money. And for me, that's been really quite transformative in terms of how the industry is performing. Catherine, I'm not sure whether this falls within the criteria of control or difference or imitability, but I want to ask you about your argument that it's not the big data that's inherently valuable, but rather the analytical tools used to extract inferences. You've actually made the point that there are some really substantial challenges facing data analysts that have to be overcome before value can be extracted from a large data set. Can you talk us through some of those challenges? 
let me give you some examples of what I mean by this, which have come from my own research about where data which may look like it's incredibly valuable may actually not be that valuable. So one form of advertising we see done quite frequently in the digital world is something called retargeting. And that's where if you were to go onto a website and browse winter coats, the ad with the winter coat follows you around the internet, right? And you might think, well, gosh, that's pretty valuable data. You don't have to do much processing or anything else, really, to make that ad work. But actually, what my research is focused on is that that kind of ad with the winter coat stalking around the internet is often incredibly ineffective. There's little inherent value in that insight without a great deal of further skill on the part of the platform. That skill comes in trying to identify exactly whether or when that person ever is interested in that winter coat and then whether or not an ad may actually affect that purchase process. So I think even in an extreme example where we might think that the data itself doesn't really need any further processing, there's still a lot of skill needed in the platform to identify when the ad should be shown. If we were starting from the beginning and trying to work out, well, what eyeballs on a particular web page might be interested in winter coats, what data would be useful for giving that kind of insights? That's where the real judgment comes in. So given so much data, what is really rare often in this market is the judgment or the skill in identifying when an ad would actually be relevant for a pair of eyeballs. And that's not going to come from using the data in a very straightforward manner. What you're really talking about here is the predictive power of data And as we know, algorithms are trained using data to come up with predictions on customer preferences. Is it the case that to train algorithms in that way, one needs to have large data holdings? Or can this training and experimentation be run on relatively small data sets and it's the quality more than the size of the data set that really matters? So I must admit a slight bias here towards experimentation in that most of the time, for example, in online advertising, it is pretty ineffective and it doesn't really influence behavior. So therefore, trying to use a predictive algorithm by itself to make predictions isn't really going to get you very far, given what you're trying to measure is such a small perturbation. Instead, what I have typically used in my research and the large platforms use are field experiments or what you might call A-B tests to Mm. try and work out in real time whether or not an ad is working. And generally, you're going to do far better there than using the best kind of predictive algorithms. The other thing I wanted to add was that one of the things I have often heard said in this debate is that data has increasing returns to scale. And I've heard that asserted much, but I haven't seen any empirical evidence. And the empirical evidence that we've seen 
is that there are certainly some advantages to having small amounts of data and that you go from one to 10,000 observations that you certainly get a return to predictive power. However, it is not the case that when we go from 10,000 to 20,000 observations, our predictive power goes up relatively or more than doubles, which is somewhat suggested by the increasing returns hypothesis. And so I think we have to be reasonably careful. I want to ask you about economies of scope, though, because you'd be aware a number of competition authorities around the world are taking the view that competitive advantage for the large platforms derives from the fact that they can amass data from a variety of sources. So what's your view on that, Catherine? There are two things I'd say to it. The first thing is the only real empirical study I know on this topic is one which was done by Amazon economists who take that in the way you choose to interpret it. But there they show very few economies of scope in that when you try and use data from one product to predict potential outcomes for another product, you really get very little. So I think the economies of scope argument could perhaps be springing from the idea that if I have data on gender and age, that somehow the interaction of those two sources of data might be more valuable than them independently. But having run lots of studies of trying to understand where advertising should be, that kind of interaction is both unpredictable and also can often be somewhat negative. And so it doesn't seem we've got any generalized argument that layers on layers of data have a positive complementarity in any way. It does seem to flow from what you've said that it's not the data itself, but the engineering and analytical skills, of course, combined with business acumen and managerial insight, that's going to determine the value to be derived from big data. Now, you may not be able to answer this, but I'd be interested to know, are those types of skills, the analytic skills in particular, scarce? Well, I must admit to being somewhat self-interested in answering this question, and obviously MIT Sloan does offer our Masters in Analytics program, so we do <laughs> like to market uh, the, the program as saying that these kind of resources are scarce. I would say this, what has been quite striking to me about digital advertising is just how much it has been transformed and run by engineers. And that is great in that they have done things that we would never have dreamt possible in terms of being able to come up with ways of using analytics and integrating data into campaigns. I think the downside, though, is just because something is possible from an engineering perspective, it doesn't mean that necessarily it's going to be great advertising for the advertiser. And an example for that of me is that winter coat that may be following you around the internet. Retargeted advertising is a wonderful 
example of computer and engineering skill, but it's not necessarily a great example of marketing insight. And I think what's been really rare in this market is the combination of the engineering skill with the degree of marketing insight, which really understands the importance of timing and placement of ads and how we might use this wonderful digital world to achieve that. So I don't think we should look at the big tech firms and say, oh, they got a big bench strength in engineering. Let's be worried. I think in general, the big lack is the combination between insight and engineering, which my experience has tend to be quite rare in this industry. I want to round up by asking about one final criterion for assessing the competitive advantage derived from big data. And again, this might link to some of your other criteria, but it's what you've referred to as non-substitutability. And it involves the question, is there no means other than through big data to achieve success in these markets? How would you go about answering that question? Well, we've touched on this a little bit before in the podcast when we were thinking about control and the idea that data by itself is not valuable, but what is really valuable is the insight that data can give you. And as soon as you have that perspective, the big question becomes, is no alternative means of getting at this insight that is, is it the case that you could discover that I was a new parent through alternative means than me doing that search for baby clothes on the bus this morning? As we discussed, that data is everywhere due to this ubiquity of my digital footprint. And so that's a way of thinking about the non-substitutability criteria. What about it just being necessary, though? I mean, it's one thing to talk about the skills one must have to derive insight from data. But what if you don't have the big data to begin with? There are reasons to think that that would diminish or eliminate the prospect of a new competitor who doesn't have the data to begin with? So I think there's two ways about thinking about necessary. The first is just to say, as we talked about before, there's a huge market which allows you to buy data which sort of scrubs that criterion slightly from the beginning. But even if we ignore that market, the other thing I'm always struck by and excited by about this industry is just the extent to which we've seen startups come from utterly nowhere and be able to build themselves from that position of no data whatsoever. It's not the case that for their success, having data in the first place was necessary. And I think that's one of the things which is slightly difficult about making assertions in this market is that often if you're successful in advertising or digital advertising, by its very nature, you're going to end up with great treasure troves of data. And so it would be natural to say, oh, it's that treasure trove of data which has led to your success. But if you trace through the examples of startups coming from nowhere in this industry, it becomes clear that data can also be very much a byproduct of success rather than a root cause of success. Looking to the future, can I ask you to crystal ball gaze somewhat? Where would you say the future of ad technology is headed? 
are we likely to see this technology and perhaps the data used to target ads change yet again and to see the industry go through yet a further transformation? I can almost guarantee it. This does not require a crystal ball. What has been striking is I can imagine us having this conversation eight years ago and talking about... Would have been a very different conversation. It would have been, but we could have said there's been so much transformation that mm-hmm. had been. And would we have done a great job of predicting what happened to mobile? Probably not. I think we would not have predicted just how quickly it would take off and the extent to which so many digital advertising companies would now be touting themselves as mobile first. I think what's exciting now is we don't know quite what the next mobile will be. We can only guarantee that there will be one. And I think one way of also thinking about why this is an industry which is constantly shifting is that all firms know that they need advertising. We've never been able to measure whether it works properly before. We're starting to be able to measure that. We've discovered that on the whole, you're wasting a lot of money a lot of the time. And so given that, the opportunity for improvement is still immense. And while we still have this ability potentially completely transform how well online advertising works, I think we can sort of guarantee that this is an industry which will keep on and constantly changing. Listening to Catherine, it struck me. It's all very well theorising about big data and its effects, but there's a lot, possibly a lot more to be said for empirically testing our theories and intuitions. Next on Competition Law, we get back to blockchain. Now you might recall that in episodes 22 and 23 of the podcast, we were joined by Dr. Thibaut Schreppel, who walked us through the nuts and bolts of this technology and the prospects of it challenging the power of the major platforms. In the next follow-up episode, we ask just what would an abuse of dominance or a cartel look like on blockchain? Until then, you can find links to Catherine's research and writing in the show notes and other resources and links always at competitionlaw.com. Please take a moment to leave us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. And Competition Law was produced by written and recorded.com. I'm Karan Beaton Wells. Hold up. 